So today's going to be a slightly shorter episode because I want to talk about just the first few lines of a much longer work. We're not going to talk about the whole work, but I want to kind of introduce you to a poem that was important in its day and we don't often talk about anymore, but that I want to turn your attention toward. This poem is Aurora Lee by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Now, Elizabeth Barrett Browning is most known these days for her sonnet from the Portuguese, which for a long time I thought were a series of sonnets translated from the Portuguese language. Uh, That is not, in fact, what they are. But the sonnets from the Portuguese are a series of love poems that Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote for her husband, Robert Browning. Robert Browning and Elizabeth Barrett Browning were kind of the literary power couple of the mid-19th century in Victorian England. Elizabeth Barrett, her maiden name was Barrett, she was born to a family who made sure she was educated not just in English, but also in the classical languages. Barrett studied with Hugh Stuart Boyd, who was probably the premier translator of late antique Christian poetry from the Greek in his day. Now, I know late antique Christian poetry in Greek has never been anyone's favorite genre, except for perhaps mine. Boyd was most interested in the poetry of St. Gregory of Nazianzus and Synesius of Cyrene, who are two of the most important Greek poets of the three and four hundreds. Barrett got from him this love for not just poetry in general, but for those poets and those eras of poetry that often weren't focused on by others. And in fact, as she began her career, Barrett wrote a series of essays called Some Accounts of the Greek Christian Poets, which have very idiosyncratic but wonderful entertaining summaries of early Greek Christian poetry. She does not hold back. Often, if she doesn't like a poet or a poem, she'll tell you in very creative ways. But one of the things that she gained from studying with Boyd, and Boyd, by the end of his life, was blind. And so she actually, it wasn't just that she sat at his feet and, you know, memorized what he told her. She ended up working alongside him to translate and do scholarship on this poetry. But one of the things she got from Boyd is that the classical tradition, the classical formal traditions of Greek poetry going back to the Athenian Golden Age and even beyond that to Sappho and Homer in great antiquity, that was something she saw as continued by Christian poets and that she herself, as a Christian poet, could see herself in the tradition of. So there's a link in Boyd's mind and in Barrett's mind between the writers of classical antiquity, Homer, Sappho, Aeschylus, the writers of Christian antiquity, Gregory and Synesius, and those Christian writers who are writing in the modern languages like Barrett herself. One of the things that Barrett says in her account of the Greek Christian poets is that she particularly admires, and I think she got this from Boyd a bit, the autobiographical poems of St. Gregory of Nazianzus. Now, we've talked about those uh, on this podcast a while ago. It had a series of episodes on Gregory's autobiographical poem on the metered. And Browning, uh, well, Barrett, and then Browning once she marries uh, Robert Browning, she takes this idea that she gets, I think, in Gregory for the autobiographical poem and makes it a fully modern, fully contemporary exercise of expressing her life, her life, you know, in a creative sense. She doesn't just, you know, record a diary for us in Aurora Lay. She gives us an autobiographical poem that is crafted 
at the highest level that a Victorian poet perhaps ever crafted an autobiographical poem. Whenever a poet says, I'm writing an autobiographical poem, we have to remember this is still a crafted object. This is a piece of literary art. It's not just, you know, gushing unreservedly and uncraftedly about oneself. But this idea that one could write of oneself and try and gain clarity and even wisdom from reflecting on one's past is something that Barrett sees in Christian antiquity, especially with Gregory of Nazianzus, and then tries for herself in Aurora Lee. So I want to look at the opening stanza of Aurora Lee. Aurora Lee was written in the 1850s after she gets married, and it's certainly her longest work, and it's a work that I think because it's long, it's easy to skip over. In fact, a lot of the work of the Victorians that's longer gets skipped over. We read Tennyson's Ulysses. It's a page of iambic pentameter. We don't often read Tennyson's In Memoriam. We read maybe a selection or two from Tennyson's Idols of the King, but we don't read all of them. We read the sonnets from the Portuguese. They're little bite-sized sonnets. We don't read Aurora Lee. So let this be an encouragement to you to go read Aurora Lee in order to give you a taste of what you might find when you get there. I want to read the opening stanza, which is just eight lines long. Of writing many books there is no end, and I who have written much in prose and verse for others' uses will write now for mine will write my story for my better self, as when you paint your portrait for a friend who keeps it in a drawer and looks at it long after he has ceased to love you, just to hold together what he was and is. I love this opening stanza because it unfolds an image that begins as just an interesting comparison, but then has this emotionally tense backstory that's unfolded in this comparison. Very bold on Browning's part. She starts with an iambic pentameter version of Ecclesiastes 12.12, of writing many books there is no end. She's like, thank you, Solomon. I will use that for the opening line. I'll tidy up the English translation, so it's perfect iambic pentameter, of writing many books there is no end. Uh, usually this is translated something like, of the writing of books, or of the writing of many books there is no end. I love how she just appropriates it as her opening line. Of writing many books there is no end, and I, who have written much in prose and verse for others' uses, will now write for mine. This is kind of a manifesto of autobiographical poetry. I wrote for others' uses. And, you know, she wrote love poems. She had written translations. She has a very interesting long dramatic poem, which is a conversation between seraphim about the salvific work of Christ. Very interesting stuff. Now she says, I'm going to write for my use. And it's interesting that autobiography would be for personal use. What is autobiography for? Why write about yourself? Now, it's one thing to create a character and speak from the perspective of that character. We see that all throughout lyric poetry. But as I always remind people, and as probably if you've taken any college or high school English class, the, your teacher will often remind you, the speaker in a poem, the speaker in a novel, is not necessarily the explicitly autobiographical self of the poet or writer talking. It's a constructed self. But Browning here is telling us, no, 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 I'm going to write for my ends. I'm going to write about me, 
for me. Now, of course, she's crafting it into beautiful iambic pentameter. And so obviously she's writing to delight us as well as for herself. But I think she's also writing to delight herself. The, the poet, especially the poet who's really at the top of her craft, which Browning was in the 50s, uh, around uh, 1850, um, William Wordsworth had died, who was the longstanding poet laureate of England. And apparently Victoria asked Elizabeth Barrett Browning to be the poet laureate. And she said, thanks, but I don't want to. Which is just awesome, I, right? I could have been the poet laureate, but I just didn't feel like it. And so they asked Tennyson as their second choice. And Tennyson, of course, gladly says, yes, I'll be poet laureate. But whenever people talk about Tennyson being the poet laureate of Victorian England, I think, well, it, it could have been Browning, but she wasn't feeling it that day. So Aurora Leigh is a creation of someone who is at the top of their game as a poet and who can really write about whatever they want. She's already gained fame and acclaim, the highest acclaim that perhaps you can have in Victorian England being asked to be poet laureate. She's saying, I'm going to write for myself. And then she gives this image. We'll write my story for my better self. So lest we think, oh, she's trying to be selfish or she's just self-interested. Well, she's saying she's writing her own story for her better self. There seems to be this contrast between her and then her better self. And this reminds me actually a bit, once again, of St. Gregory, who talks about how writing, especially writing in meter, can better the self can discipline the self uh, to become a more ordinate, more moderate, more measured thing. It's not exactly what Browning is saying here, but this idea that the writing of poetry about the self for the self isn't necessarily just selfishness or self-indulgence, but is an ascetic thing. And also, I think the self and the better self here, it's also temporal. We're going to have a contrast in just a minute, or a comparison in just a minute in this poem, between the past self and a present self. And here we have a contrast between maybe a present okay self and maybe a future better self, or maybe a better past self. She doesn't clarify. And I think it brings up a question, what, what is our better selves? What would it even mean for us to be better? We'll write my story for my better self as when you paint your portrait for a friend. Okay, so this is the beginning of a comparison. It's actually a drawn out simile. X is like or as Y, basic structure of a simile. So I will write my story for my better self as when you paint your portrait for a friend. Now, this is the kind of thing that I think the Victorians would have immediately thought, oh yeah, getting a portrait painted and giving to your friend. For us, that, that, that might be odd. We can just snap a picture. Painting a portrait is a much more time-consuming, and, I mean, we need to remember this is aristocratic England. This is a woman who has made a significant amount of money and is married to a man who has made some money from writing of their respective poems. So this is maybe an aristocratic privilege to be able to, you know, say, oh, yes, let me have my portrait painted. Not everyone in Victorian England can afford to have their portrait painted, but if you want a picture of yourself, that's what you need to do. Photography is very rare at this point. Certainly there are no selfie sticks. As when you paint your portrait for a friend. Notice it's just a friend, right? It's not given any particular connotation, even of the gender of this friend. As when you paint a portrait for a friend. Who keeps it in a drawer. Well, that's a little sad. They keep it in a drawer. Why don't they put it up on their wall? Well, they keep it in a drawer, but they look at it 
this next line is devastating. Long after he has ceased to love you. So she brought us into this simile, just saying, oh, it's when you paint a portrait for a friend. Okay, nothing emotionally difficult there. Not even any assumed backstory. It's just a portrait for a friend. They keep it in a drawer and look at it sometimes. Oh, how nice of them. Long after he has ceased to love you. So in one clause, we get this friend is a male friend, and this is a friend who used to love her and who no longer loves her. Devastating. Long after he has ceased to love you, just to hold together what he was and is. This is a wonderful use of simple to-be verbs. To hold together what he was and is. In that was is contained a whole self in love. And what he is, within that word is, is contained someone coming to terms with the fact that they don't love someone anymore. But now they have their picture, their portrait that was painted and given to them. And this is very curious. They look at it to hold those two together, which must be an act that both brings remembrance of joy, but also a great present pain. You almost get the feeling that this he, whoever he is, who used to love this person who had their portrait painted, he's almost torturing himself, pulling out and looking at this portrait of a woman. Well, did he betray her? We don't have explicitly used to love me and now you don't, and that's a betrayal, but there's a sense of certainly loss of love, certainly some sort of pain. And this man, for some reason, is trying to hold together who he is. And I think this is the brilliance of Browning, because all of this is just the second half of a simile. She's not even telling us necessarily a true story of, you know, a woman who has her portrait painted and given to a man who used to love her and now doesn't. This is just to help us understand what she's trying to do, to write her story for her better self. So I mentioned that there may be a temporal distinction between my, the my of my story and the self of my better self. This, in one sense, as a poem, is the portrait that Browning is making for the person who used to love her and now doesn't. And that could be her, is the the better self and the he seem compared. The better self is the one who pulls out the old portrait to hold together what she was and she now is. And maybe that's something that autobiographical poetry can do. If we write our story, it can be a way of holding together our own identity, not just trying to articulate, what do I think I am? Who do I think I have been? but to hold together the person I am now and the person I was. And now for us, Aurora Lee can be a poem that we get to compare both to our own experience, but also think about, okay, who is this speaker in the present and who was she in the past and how do they compare? Is this comparison going to reveal that there's a present speaker, the one who writes the poem, that's the better self? Or is this a speaker who once had love and lost it? Well, that's for us to decide as we read and think about Aurora Lee. But I hope this invitation into this long and important poem and too little read poem can be inspiring to you to go out and not just check out Aurora Lee, but all of Browning's poetry. Browning is a poet that is going to be with us for a long time. But since she's not Tennyson, often she's kind of spoken of always as a second thought and never a first thought. Let Browning be first in your thought, at least for a while. 
Thank you. This has been the Poetry Corner Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell.